Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 16, reading verses 1 through 23, and I warn you in advance that this is a list of greetings with a lot of ancient names, a lot, and I can't promise to be faithful in the string of pronunciations. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Chintra, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Grant my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Trephena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretitis, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, with this greeting, we know that you also communicate yourself to us, and you instruct us, and so we do ask that you would teach us, and that you would instruct us and lead us in your way today that we know your mind, and that we apprehend your will for us. We ask that you come in all of our weakness, and that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. We are at the end. We're at the end of Romans, after many months of working through these 16 chapters. And then when we arrive at the end, we come to this mess. Names that are foreign and difficult to pronounce. Names that I no doubt butchered towards the latter half. Paul greets 26 individuals separately. 
here in Romans 16. He greets two families, and he greets at least three house churches, if not five. There's a strong temptation, and I understand it completely, to skip this material, considering it somewhat the mundane history and the minutiae of just letter writing. After all, that's especially the case when you look at the book of Romans and the heights that we have traveled to. After you work through the depths of chapter 1 and 2, speaking of human depravity and sinfulness and what the consequences of our rebellion against God have been. But then we see what God does. Despite having been handed over to sin, he hands over his son for us, that we could have a new status with him, being justified, counted righteous, that we could have a new freedom, that we are now free to walk out of Egypt, struggling against the power of sin in our lives, and that we have a new destiny, that we have a new heavens and earth in front of us, in which the world will be freed from its death and decay. And that God has planned these things before the foundations of the world we saw in chapters 9 through 11. This grace is rich, it's full, and it's free, and it's ours in Jesus. And it is through Jesus that we've been brought into communion with the Father through the Spirit. And then we have a list of greetings. Greet, greet, greet. An extensive list of greetings. From Paul to this, what is really not that large of a church. So what exactly does it have to do with anything? Why do we bother to read it? Why are we messing with it today? I would suggest to you that as Americans, we're particularly prone to overlook this chapter. Over the past 50 years, sociologists like Robert Wuth now and Christian Smith have documented a shift in Americans' orientation to religious behavior. In particular, what they have noted that it's common for people today to continue to be interested in spiritual things and that there's a common phrase, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what Wuthnow and Smith observe about this is that Americans are still somewhat interested in God. They're interested perhaps in a God of their really own definition, but what they are uniquely disinterested in is a God that has an organized religion attached to him. And they're particularly disinterested in the church. And so our spirituality is detached from any formal type of organization, any corporate type of gathering that gives embodiment to that. But when we arrive here in Romans 16, after all the heights that we've addressed about the grace of God and where that has taken us, we then land in the mundane. And this signals something critical for you and for me. And that is that the heights of God's grace and all the wonders that we've explored cannot be separated from the mundane Christian community that Paul greets, the people in it, with all their faults and their failures, the strife and the struggle that accompanied that life, that we can never separate the grace of God from his local body that he loves called the church. We have no permission from God to operate and to function inside of the spirituality that he offers us in his son Jesus 
and to separate it from the church. In this chapter, what it reveals to us is certain things about that church that God has created with all of its problems and all of its perils that God loves the church that Paul greets. And we're going to learn four things specifically this morning about that church and why it's so important and what we're to cherish about it. But we're going to see something of its composition. We'll see something about its operations, how it works. We'll learn about its peril, the danger that it faces. And we'll also see the overwhelming promise that God gives uniquely to the church. So let's look at each of those. First, the composition of the church. In this list of individuals and families that we find in chapter 16, there is an interweaving of names that reflects many different cultures. A majority of the names, names like Phoebe, Apelles, Aristobulus, and Hermes, these are all Gentile names. And they reflect the Gentile mission of the Apostle Paul and others who gave themselves to preaching the gospel around the Mediterranean world. These were the first converts. In fact, we see that even the first convert in Asia was now here in the Roman church. The church had Gentiles who were coming from very different cultural backgrounds and religious upbringings. They were now worshiping the triune God. They were coming to him through Jesus Christ. But there's also a significant number of Jewish names in this church. Prisca, Aquila, Andronicus, Junia, Herodian. These were all people who grew up inside the Jewish synagogue. They had been taught certain beliefs and hopes, and they came to the conviction that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is the Messiah, the long-promised one, who was coming to deliver all of the world from the problem of sin and death. And so this Roman church, most likely comprised of several house churches, It was not possible to have a a meeting space like this for a church at that time. They gathered in houses that could probably gather anywhere from 30 to 40 people. But small house churches scattered throughout Rome, home to people with various cultural backgrounds. There was diversity in that church. However, that wasn't it. It wasn't just cultural diversity. There were also people with various levels of maturity. In verse 3, Paul greets Prisca and Aquila. They were his partners in the gospel. He had ministered with them previously. You find Paul joining up in Acts chapter 18 with them in Corinth. And then they instructed Apollos. Apollos, who is known as perhaps the greatest preacher of the early church. They had to sit down and instruct Apollos in a better way of theology. And his preaching was better for it. They were mature, seasoned. Paul says that they risk their necks for my life. These people had made great sacrifices for the gospel. They were mature. We find also in this company people that we don't know much about, but certainly people who were newly converted. But then in verse 7, we also learn of Andronicus and Junia. Paul says that they are his kinsmen and fellow prisoners, and that they were well known to the apostles and that they were in Christ before he was. Most scholars will conclude that these two, Andronicus and Junia, were probably amongst that company of 500 who witnessed the resurrected Jesus before them 
on the earth. There was also a famous Christian in the company, the man named Rufus. It's hard for me to say it with a straight face because we have a dog in the family named Rufus. But we're told something interesting that Rufus's father, if you were to look in Mark 15, there is a Rufus marked out in Mark's gospel. And Mark's gospel was written in Rome. And Rufus's father was a man named Simon, who had the distinguished privilege of helping bear Jesus's cross for him. He was impressed by the Roman soldiers to do so. But the only name, the only reason that that was mentioned in Mark's gospel is that Rufus was well known. He was, uh, it was understood who he was, and here he appears once again. And so we have people in all kinds of places of maturity, experience, and exposure to Christianity here in the church. But the diversity doesn't stop there either. It gets more complex because there's also social diversity. Not only cultural diversity, but social diversity. Phoebe was a patron, a benefactor of Paul's. This means that she was a woman of means. We're told that she was a servant of the church and that she had helped Paul, and now she was coming to the Romans, most likely to deliver Paul's letter. But also from that list of Gentile names that are hard to say, we know that those names were also only given in Roman society to slaves and also to freedmen. And so in this company, you had wealthy individuals and you also had the lower classes. It was a mixed company. And you look at all that, and this is what a church is composed of. But we have to ask the question, how exactly did they hold all of that together? That creates tremendous tensions. It creates a lot of pressure for a community to hold together all of that diversity. And so how do we today, how do we hold together a church of people with different races, different social classes, different backgrounds, different levels of maturity, and even different generations? How can you possibly begin to hold that together? Many, of course, would suggest that you couldn't. But there's strong medicine here in the book of Romans. Because as Paul greets all of this diversity, he knows that it's held together in one place. He's highlighted it in chapter 15 and verse 7, that we are to welcome one another as we have been welcomed by God in Jesus. And friends, this is the church's one hope amidst all of its diversity. All of those ways in which we differ from one another is what unites us is that faith in Jesus and then showing that same welcome to one another as God has shown to us. This is the only way as we receive and accept one another according to the acceptance we have in Jesus. Friends, this is the composition of the church and the unity of the church stands and falls around our acceptance of one another in Christ. But second, we learn something also about the operations of the church. In this chapter, we find an active community. It's a community of men and women who were seeking to further the gospel. We're introduced to Phoebe in verse 1, and she is given the title of a servant of the church in Chintra. 
Chinter was the port city connected to Corinth. And we learned that she was a patron. This did mean that she was a wealthy woman. She was a benefactor. She's traveling to Rome, most likely to assist Paul as he sets up for his Spanish mission that was spoken of in chapter 15. Scholars debate the matter about whether Phoebe held a formal office. She is called a servant of the church. And so some think, and that word servant is the word deacon, that Phoebe was a deaconess in the early church, that she had a particular place and role in the church. Others will say it's just a statement that's made about many Christians. Wherever you land on that, there are good biblical arguments on both sides of the equation. We have to deal with 1 Timothy 3, and we have to weigh all that that means. But here's what can be agreed on, is that what we find here is that women were very active. We have many women listed here, and we have many men listed here. We have people that are experienced and people that are inexperienced, but everyone was partnering together in the ministry of the gospel here in Romans. Paul had known many of these people around the Mediterranean from his other journeys, and they had given themselves to the gospel. They had been caught up in this vision of something greater than their own interest, and they were laying down their lives now to be involved in something greater than themselves. And this is the point, that ministry is not something left to the professionals. It's not just for the clergy, that the beauty of Christian ministry is that it is a body that certainly has organization, certainly has offices, certainly has leadership, but it is that body partnering together to see the kingdom of God made visible in their midst. And it's critical that we partner together. Everyone finding the part that they play inside of their gifting and how they can serve in that particular season of their life, and that will look different. For instance, in verse 6, we learn that Mary... She worked hard for the Roman church. Many people ask, what does it mean to, to work hard? But it's interesting, if you look in Colossians chapter 4, in verse 13, you'll find that the same word was used by Paul, and it's a unique word. And it's used of a man there who prayed diligently for the church. And this is most likely what it means, that Mary worked hard for the Roman church. She had been in prayer. She had used her particular calling and her particular season of life to serve the church in prayer. And friends, this is what we're called to and called to be caught up in. Doesn't mean that everyone does the same thing. It doesn't mean that everyone has the same gifts as we saw in Romans chapter 12. But we're to exercise those gifts in service of the church to advance the gospel. This is how the church operates and works. And it's part of its beauty and how it holds together its diversity as we give ourselves to that common cause of Jesus in the world. Third, we also learn here in this chapter about the peril, that is the danger of the church. If you follow in verse 17, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Most likely, this reflects that false teaching had not reached 
from some of the other churches where Paul combated that, that you find in places like Corinth, and you find another expression of it in Galatia. It had not reached the Roman church, but Paul knew it was present. He knew that there were those ministers who served their own appetites, literally it says served their own bellies, and that they would take advantage of the naive and they would seek to mislead them. That false teaching has always been a part of the equation, that it's always been a struggle for the church, and so Paul warns the church. And it's important for us to hear it again and again. Not just something for then and there, but here and now to know that there's peril and there's danger. There's fragility in the church and that we too can be misled. And so what exactly was the problem? What was the potential division that concerned Paul? From the book of Romans, we can see, and from the broader New Testament, we can see probably two things. The first thing are teachers who were making non-essential things essential. That is that they were binding the conscience of fellow believers saying you must do this when they had no permission from God to make that requirement. Historically, that was built most likely around the Mosaic law and they were saying that this has to be obeyed, that this stipulation must be followed. And Paul is saying no, that this law has been fulfilled in Christ and now everything has changed. And so Paul warns that non-essential things were not to be made essential. And friends, this always hijacks the gospel and it corrupts a church's life when it happens. It happens over different issues in the modern world. But we find it easily creeping in to the life of a church where the things of first importance are not held out and held up. And things of inferior importance are smuggled in and elevated to a place that they were never intended to have. But second, there were also teachers in the early church, false teachers, places like Galatians and even in Philippians that Paul identifies. And what they were doing was domesticating the grace of God. They were teaching that you could put a claim on the grace of God by your obedience, that you could somehow obligate God to give you forgiveness and mercy by how you behaved. And this is an enormous project to take God's grace and to bring it under human control, to make it something that God must give us. And what we've seen in Romans is that this is not the way the grace of God works, that it's immense, it's rich, and it's immense and rich because it's free. And it's God who gives. And God gives it freely despite all of our undeserving. And it comes to weak and burdened and broken sinners. And it finds us in the depths and raises us to the heights, taking us into communion with God. By forgiving our sins, by counting us righteous. This is how the gospel works. And friends, the peril of the church is that its core and primary message always runs counter to the message of the world. That the world will never understand that freedom and that joy. That we don't relate to God by putting claims on him. That we submit ourselves to him because he's gracious and good. And so there will always be that danger that there will be false teaching. And so Paul encourages the church Mimicking the works of Jesus himself to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
We want to be wise to the gospel. And we want to be innocent in anything that smacks of putting a claim on God. We want to distance ourselves from that. It's the peril of the church. But fourth, we also learn something of the promise of the church. If you follow in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a beautiful way to begin to draw the letter to a close. Despite all the tension and the turmoil of the church, despite the conflict and the struggles, despite the death and decay of the world around them, Paul reminds them of the promise that Jesus gives to his church. And that church is all those who are joined to him by faith. And the promise has been sworn to us. Because Jesus has died and because Jesus has been raised, this promise is ours that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. How exactly does that work? Paul is alluding to Genesis 3.15. It's there in that fateful rebellion where Adam and Eve turned from God, where they announced to God that they wanted to be autonomous and independent from him, that they wanted to be the ones who determined good from evil, to judge right and wrong, to define reality according to their own will, that God then submits the world to a curse. And he says to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, referring to the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you, referring to the serpent, shall bruise his heel and friends, the ultimate offspring of the woman that was being promised there in Genesis 3.15, this is the first promise of the gospel, is none other than our Lord Jesus. And he was the one who came and he was bruised, but yet he crushed the head of the serpent. He destroyed him. He went down into death, the layer of the serpent, and yet he rose victorious because he was the one righteous man. He had done no wrong, and so death could not hold him. He was declared right. And this is Jesus' trampling down of sin and death. And so the promise to all who look to Jesus, no matter our experience, no matter our experience of the conflict of sin, no matter how defeated we feel in the present moment, the promise to the church is that God will lead you in triumph. That our Lord Jesus has trampled down all sin, death, and evil, and the devil. And he will lead you in that same triumph because Jesus is the pioneer. Jesus is the one who has gone before you. Jesus is victorious. And upon his return, all will be right. And every manner of things will be right. And he will lead you in his triumph as evil is removed from God's good creation. This is what God's judgment is always about. It's not simply a negative, but it is a removal. It is purging the dross to bring forth the beauty of creation. And all those in humility who look to Jesus will stand with him in triumph. So friends, what looks like an innocent list of mundane greetings 
actually takes us full circle back to where we started in chapter one, a letter to a very common and ordinary church, a concrete group of people who gathered together week by week and month by month to worship God because they had come to know him through Jesus. And they came from a very diverse composition. There were various levels of maturity, various generations, various ethnicities, all kinds of different tensions that could exist. But they came together to operate as a body, to bring what they had and to offer that to God. And they had to work through the peril of that, knowing that there would be people who came in who had other ideas who would want to put a claim on God and challenge his grace. And they did so together under one banner, and that is the triumphant promise of the gospel. That God's great promise is that we are on our way to a new heavens and a new earth, a world remade, freed from death and decay. And as Paul indicates in Romans chapter 8, that the creation itself is on tiptoe, eagerly awaiting the revelation of the sons and the daughters of God when God shall raise us again and give us new bodies freed from all the corruption and stain of sin. This is the promise that binds the church together and allows us to hold together all of this diversity and all of the challenge. And so as we exit the book of Romans, be captivated by that promise to know that God will soon trample Satan under your feet because you belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do look to that promise and we ask that you would fill our hearts with belief and hope and confidence. And that in the meantime, as we wait, as we wait that unknown day that we do not know the fulfillment of, we only know it's certain, we don't know it's timing. We ask God that you sustain us, that you sustain us as a church of many people drawn from different backgrounds to worship you, one God, and that you allow us to operate and to function and to serve together, and that we do so being innocent of things that would mislead us. Empower us with this promise. Fill our hearts with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.